The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and we're coming to you from the studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Philadelphia. And streaming live on WWDBAM.com. You can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com or like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And again, our shows are podcast on a regular basis on the www.jewishsacredaging.com. We'll be going to be back with our first segment guest, Colleen Caden, right after this message from our very good friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio was brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in Together Transforming the Experience of Aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888 888- Hi, welcome back to our first segment here today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Uh, Again, coming to you from the studios of WWDBAM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia and streaming live across the world, I guess, on WWDBAM.com. We are very pleased to welcome back uh, Colleen Caden, geriatric hospice and palliative care pharmacist and a pharmacist with medication information services and Williams Apothecary out in beautiful Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Colleen, welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you, Richard. Nice to be back. It's good to hear your voice. It's been a couple of years since, uh, and lots of lots to talk about. So I want to thank you again for your time and and willingness to come back. Um, let me let me start with an article that appeared in a recent New York Times column by Paula Spann, I think on the 26th of April, talking about something called, which I, a term I never heard of, polypharmacy, um, and really talked about. There's something that really baby boomers dealing with our older parents, um, I think, are dealing with more and more and more about this multiplicity of medication, uh, medications that a lot of our parents and as we are caregivers. Uh, I think Paula mentioned in the article, 39% of people over 65 now use at least five or more medications, which is an increase of 70% in the last 12 years. Um, what do we do with this? How, how, do, how does somebody begin to deal with managing all these various medications, some of which I, I would assume don't necessarily agree with each other? Well, I, I think uh, it, this is a huge problem. Um, and But let me talk for just a moment as to how we got here. Um, understand that you know, today we can treat a lot of chronic diseases with medications um, that we were unable to do so uh, as you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and certainly beyond that. So uh, on, on the one hand, uh, people are able to be treated on an outpatient basis, not have to be hospitalized. We can manage their chronic diseases. They're living longer. So you have that on the plus side. But on the negative side, 
what it does create is this whole idea around polypharmacy, meaning there are a lot of medications that are being used. Uh, the number, I think, is only going to increase uh, moving forward. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of these medications aren't always compatible with each other or with an aging uh, individual. Uh, that's, that's the one thing I think that often gets overlooked is that um, our ability to process these medications, to absorb them and metabolize them and eliminate them, changes as we age. So what we were able to tolerate and, and use uh, efficiently as a 30-year-old certainly is very different than when we're 70, 80, 90 years old. So it's a, a very complex problem, and uh, there are a lot of ways to approach it. I, I think the, the, probably the single most important question that um, people can ask is, why am I taking this, and what is the expectation uh, when I do take it? You know, what outcome is to be expected? I think the second question um, comes about from the fact that uh, we spend a lot of time seeing specialists. And um, the communication um, uh, between and among specialists, uh, I don't think it's, uh, there's anything nefarious about it. It just isn't particularly good. And as a result, um, sometimes people end up on duplicate therapies as well. So there, there are a lot of different, you know, there are a lot of concerns that are brought to the table. Um, and the most important thing is, uh, I think, for either the patient themselves or someone who's caring for them is to ask questions. And um, a great resource for that is not only the physician, certainly, but um, their pharmacist as well, because the pharmacist tends to see the entire picture and uh, can hopefully provide some uh, some good input. And at least in, in my situation, what I do is um, give people questions that they should be asking the next time they visit the physician. You know, I, I, I'm glad you said it because I, I know uh, very familiar with a situation where somebody was, you know, going to the pharmacy to get prescriptions filled after their adult parent had gone to, you know, another doctor. And at one point, the pharmacist said, excuse me, but I really need to talk to you. This prescription, I have your, you know, your parents' history here. There's two things or three things here that really shouldn't be, he shouldn't be taking these at the same time. They're not necessarily agreeing with each other. So the pharmacist becomes, I, I would imagine, an increasingly important uh, person in the care plan of a, of a family and an individual. Just more than just going to the pharmacy, dropping off the prescription, and you know, and picking it up, ask questions, right? Absolutely. Uh, the the role of the pharmacist is changing. Uh, you know, out out of as things become more automated, um, out of the dispensing only mindset into we really are gatekeepers, uh, and it also emphasizes why you should try to deal with one resource for your pharmacy needs, whatever that is, so that. All of everything is flowing through one point, and, and we can observe, you know, what's going on. I, I might point out too that one of the, uh, ironically, one of the issues we find too is that sometimes when people are discharged from the hospital, uh, they'll be on a medication from the hospital uh, that's on the hospital formulary, um, and in fact they were taking something similar to it, either in a different brand or a generic version of it, you know, at home, and oftentimes uh, without knowing it or without someone being able to sit down and review this, uh, they end up duplicating 
not only um, uh, two different, you know, similar brands, but some people have taken a brand and generic version of the exact same medication. So this sort of scrutiny over what's on the medication profile is is absolutely critical, and that's a role that we hope pharmacists will be filling more and more. Colleen, is is there a website or a where somebody can go to and say, well, here, here are, for one of a better argument, here are seven questions that you need to keep in front of you when you're dealing with the pharmacist. And I'm thinking specifically not only of people who may live in the same area, but, but so many boomers are living out of town and perhaps beginning to care for a parent long distance where it's long even distance. more difficult. Is there a resource or like the seven top questions that you need to ask? Uh I'm not sure that there's a specific resource, but certainly uh, websites around the American Pharmacists Association, uh, the National Community Pharmacists Association. If you Google them, um, there are uh, the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association. Uh, we all have areas where we can uh, of sort of that are consumer friendly. Uh, I find that there's no one set of particular questions. Um, you know that will will take care of everything. I, what I advocate is that people get to know their pharmacist, and if, even if it's long distance. Um, and I had a parent out of state. I'd find out, you know, what pharmacy they're using. I'd call up the pharmacist, tell them who I was, sign whatever necessary HIPAA, <laughs> you know, information was necessary, and have a conversation about these are my concerns. What can you tell me? Uh, I think that familiarity is probably the single most important uh, thing that someone can do on behalf of themselves or for someone they're caring for. You know, this conversation, it also triggers one other question real fast. Um, Because I'm starting to see articles and and things about this, too, in in the popular press. I, I would imagine in the professional press also that that's the is there a growth in I want to say misuse, uh, not overdose, but misuse or inappropriate use of various prescription medications on the part of, of, of older adults because they may not be aware of limitations or, or restrictions on use. I'm concerned about the fact that, that, that this, this um, misuse, not for nefarious purposes, but just because we don't know all the various interactions, can really do harm. Is there a growth in this, or am I overstating I w- it? No, I don't think you're overstating it. I think it's 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 valid. Uh, you know, almost one in five uh, admissions to the emergency department uh, are directly med-related for our elders. Um, a lot of them uh, revolve around meds to either you know to thin the blood uh, or for diabetes medications, but certainly there are many many others. Uh, and again, as I stated earlier, I think there's a general lack of I don't say recognition. We certainly know this, but I think a, a lack of appreciation for how much the body changes as we grow older uh, in relationship to the use of medications. So. The, either the misuse, the misunderstanding, the um, 
again, the whole idea that someone could be taking a brand and generic of the exact same medication, uh, that's far more common uh, than we realize, and it does present a very serious uh, issue. So I go back to, you know, asking questions, making sure you're familiar with your pharmacist so that someone someone should always, always, always be perusing that med profile mm-hmm. to make sure that, that, you know, that we're not stepping into dangerous territory. You, you mentioned that, the, you know, the body changing and stuff. So is it then, from what I'm understanding, the fact that somebody's using a medication over a longer, longer period of time and the body changes as we age, that the impact or the efficacy of that medication then dissipates? Is it less, less, less proactive? It could be less or could be more. Um, oh, okay. the, the fact that you take a, you know, a medication and at, say, age 30, your liver, you know, is healthy and highly functional and it metabolizes the medication appropriately and you get the expected response. Uh, keep in mind that drug trials are not done on old people. <laughs> They're done on relatively healthy individuals. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we make assumptions about how the elderly will react, but we don't always know. And and the longer you work in geriatrics and hospice and palliative care, you realize that uh, you know the 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 aging liver, the aging kidney, the aging you know uh, skin and lungs and so forth are impacting how these medications work. Not only from an efficacy standpoint, um, but how long they hang around in the body. Um, they you, you could have increased toxic effects. The other thing that often uh, happens as we age is that the protective, what we call blood-brain barrier, that that protection around our brain uh, starts to become uh, starts to weaken um, it's like having a, a moat around a fort and um, the moat gets uh, you know at, at one point it was full of water and alligators and now it's uh, it's kind of overgrown with weeds and uh, you know there's not much water in there and so it, it's less protective of the brain so medications that normally would not cross that blood-brain barrier when we're young and healthy uh, now start to you know impact the brain, so it can have an impact on mentation, uh, confusion, alertness, uh, lethargy. All of those things become uh, more of an issue uh, the older we become. Uh, we're speaking with Colleen Caden, pharmacist with Medication Information Services in Williams Apothecary in Lancaster, as well as a geriatric and hospice and palliative care pharmacist, which is a subject we're going to come back to right after we take a couple of second break to be reminded of our good friends down at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit Kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our first segment here of Boomer Generation Radio today. Um, we're coming to you again from the studios of WWDB AM 860 in Greater Philadelphia, streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And we're speaking with Colleen Caden uh, from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And we want to explore, Colleen, the, this whole – you alluded to this and your major work as a geriatric and hospice and palliative care pharmacist. So – 
and what's the real and you sort of alluded to this as the body ages and this also rather interesting statement that the drug trials are not done on 70 year olds they're done on 20 year olds I guess and the difference in the body and, and the way the body interacts with drugs walk me through um, your role as a geriatric and palliative care pharmacist what's the difference what are the great challenges well, the biggest challenges are exactly what we opened the show with, and that is polypharmacy. Um, so my role in, in geriatrics, I work in several long-term care facilities as well as with um, hospice and community care here in Lancaster. And um, role is to look and see, you know, first of all, I, the first question I always ask when I'm looking at a med profile, is this medication still necessary? Um, it's amazing how often people get started on a medication and just remain on it. There's, it just never stops when, in fact, the indication or the reason for continuing its use no longer exists. So that's, that's question number one. Question number two is I'm looking to see, you know, are, are any of these medications interacting with each other? Question three is... Um, are these doses still appropriate? Uh, one of the, the bigger challenges I find in, in geriatrics is that uh, we often are, you know, the, the, the key uh, principle when you're in pharmacy and geriatrics is start low and go slow. We often have to use much lower doses to achieve the same effect in an elderly person that we do in a, in a uh, younger individual. So I'm looking to see are the doses still appropriate? Is the length of treatment still appropriate? Um, you know, drug interactions. And that holds true for our palliative and hospice patients as well, because as they move down, the, you know, across the trajectory of their disease, you know, their ability to utilize these medications changes as well. So, so that's in particular what I'm looking for. Is there this uh, just an off the wall question only because of what the medical interaction and as people get older and perhaps the they may need to be taken off some medication. It's not effective anymore. Is do you get involved with the the, the, the tension between changing lifestyle and taking a pill? Uh, oh sure. I mean that. Uh, you know, people sort of are amused when I speak. I do a lot of local speaking mm -hmm. on you know uh, how do you approach and you know medications you know towards end of life and so forth. And and the reality is. Um, it, for for many people, um, they were told when they were younger, "You'll be on this forever," um, and and part of that comes about because the physicians want people to be compliant. You know, we want their blood pressure to be controlled, we want their diabetes to be managed, et cetera, et cetera. But again, as we age, we realize that um, our our body's needs and how we approach the management of chronic disease needs to change, and lifestyle is actually is very much an important part of it. Uh, you know, when we talk about things like pain management, um, it's not just about taking a pill to make your pain go away. It's about doing all of the other things that can enhance that process. So yeah, it's a very um, I, I try to look at it in a much more holistic. Um, way, um, you know, when I'm looking at a medication profile, um, I don't just see drugs. I try to see how the person is, where they are in the disease process or in the aging process, and what what are what best fits them at this point in their life, you know, as opposed to 10, 20 years ago. Is, in your experience, do we still live in a culture where the 
the, the, the concept of take a pill and everything will get better still operates? I mean, is this holistic approach still not catching on? It's uh, it's out there, but it's nearly not nearly in the way that it should be. And all you have to do is turn on the television, and every 30 <laughs> seconds you're bombarded with, you know, uh, the, the the used car ad about a pill that will do all of these wonderful things. Um, but then the real fast language at the end with all the, <laughs> the caveats, no, um, I, I know. That, that gets overlooked. Whenever I go out and talk, we, we, we get into this in one of our, our one of the presentations uh, from Jewish Sacred Aging. Is It's always j- just take a week and from 6 to 7 uh, in the news hour, just monitor the, the advertisements. Right. And we're and, and many day, years ago it used to be cars and and beer. Now it's every single type of drug, and and the drug is 15 seconds, and the disclaimer is like 45 <laughs> seconds. It's Absolutely. like frightening. Absolutely. Well, you know, and if I if I may digress for just a second, one of the interesting and and this is uh, I. I one of the things that I find interesting, and one of the reasons that I want people to ask questions, there is a uh, uh, there is a cancer drug being advertised right now that talks about the uh, a chance to live longer. But if you read the fine print, that chance to live longer converts to fifty one one out of two, or fifty percent of the people in the clinical trials lived three months longer. Uh-huh where 50% did not, as opposed to their normal chemotherapy. And they don't mention the fact that we're talking of hundreds of thousands of dollars for the treatment. Now, far be it from me, I'm not here to say what a life, what a day in someone's life is worth. That's not the point, but those are questions that need to be asked. But advertising is meant to be seductive. And, you know, there is tremendous pressure on physicians to prescribe things because, People saw them on tele- saw it on television, and then it's the answer to all their problems. When in fact, you know, nothing is ever that simple. Medical conditions aren't that simple, and we always want to look at the good things that meds do, but we we never seem to want to take the time to realize that there are consequences to these medications as well. Colleen, in the in the about two or three minutes we have left, you, you just alluded to something. I just want to ask you too, in your professional opinion, the the cost. We, we're seeing a lot more adver- um, commentaries, news programs, sixty minute types of things on just the exploding cost of of drugs and. We, how does somebody deal with that? They're life-saving, perhaps, in certain circumstances. It just seems to be getting so expensive with the healthcare system. Is there any type of light at the end of the tunnel to to reduce or to make these things available to more people without exorbitant costs? Because you mentioned cancer drugs, and that seems to be in the news more and more and more. Yeah. it's. Uh, I wish I had an answer to that question, Richard. Uh, you know. The, the 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 issue around the cost of medications is so complex, um, and I and, and I'm certainly not making excuses for it. I I've, you know there are many a morning I wake up and say this is just unconscionable, you know to to charge this much for something. But um, it, it is a very complicated uh, picture, and uh, what I would encourage people, while this isn't a universal answer, if someone is started on a new medication, particularly a branded medication, there are manufacturer um, uh, uh, programs out there that can provide medications at a much, much reduced cost to the individual. So, again, what I would say is um, 
while I don't have the single, there is no single answer to the cost of medications, there are programs out there that can help people. And, uh, you know, that's another role that the pharmacist can play is to try and help expose the person to, the, to what resources are available in the community. Yeah, I, again, that goes back to, I guess, the, the major message uh, from this conversation that is to make use of your pharmacist as a real ally in the, the whole care plan of approach to a family and an individual's medication and not just to see that as a dispensary, but to realize part of the team, part of the care medical team that can be accessed by a, an individual family. And that's that's, as you said, that's a change, isn't it? It, it is a change, and uh, you know I think there is such a huge opportunity uh, for pharmacists to impact uh, the quality of life for for you know our older uh, patients in the community, and um, so. But it is a two-way street, and uh, and certainly we don't uh, you know I, I look at it as a team effort, and if I, I, I there are things that I believe a pharmacist can bring to the table uh, that can be very helpful both to the family and to the to loved ones. Uh, that they're caring for. And um, I hope that people actually exploit <laughs> the pharmacist's knowledge. Uh, that, would, that would be a great thing. We've been speaking with Colleen Caden, pharmacist with Medication Information Services and the Williams Apothecary in Lancaster and a geriatric and hospice and palliative care pharmacist. And Colleen, I want to thank you very, very much again for giving us of your time and your expertise here again. Uh, welcome back. We look forward to having you back again. Uh, continued good luck and all your good work. So thank you very, very much for being a guest here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it. Uh, you know, this, this whole issue of... Um, end-of-life and palliative care medication uh, and, and the whole nature of end-of-life and palliative care reminds me of, a, of one of our friends, um, friends of the show, Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice, which really asked me to remind you that if you or someone you love is struggling to maintain your best quality of life while you're receiving treatments for a serious illness... Um, with the side effects perhaps of anxiety and chemotherapy or the pain and shortness of breath or COPD or whatever, a, a relatively new branch of medicine, this palliative care medicine, and we've had guests on the show uh, talking about this, this can really help you relieve your pain and manage your symptoms better and better understand your condition and your care options every step of the way from diagnosis on. The palliative care specialists at Samaritan Palliative Care Medical Partners can make a world of difference in helping you tolerate your treatments, and that means more time and energy to spend with the people and activities that matter most to you. So we invite you to call Samaritan Palliative Medical Partners today for an appointment with one of their palliative physicians or nurse practitioners. You can reach them at 855 725 That's 855 855- Seven two five five six three three, or check them out on the web at SamaritanNJ.org slash palliative dash medicine. That's SamaritanNJ.org slash palliative dash medicine. That's the Samaritan Healthcare Program over in southern New Jersey. And I also want to remind you of another good friend of our show, the Hecht Investment Group of Johnny Montgomery Scott, which provides concierge financial consulting and planning services. 
Uh, Peter and his group use a formal investment process as their foundation, and clients receive a written plan, frequent communication, and rapid response to their inquiries, which are very, very important on this, this in personal financial planning, especially in today's rather volatile financial environment. Additionally, Peter and his team can assist you in connecting to Jenny's Investment Banking Department, which specializes in assisting middle market companies achieve their strategic goals. And a reminder, and we'll be talking more about this in the coming month, that uh, the HECT Investment Group will be conducting a series of workshops on such issues as Social Security, Cybersecurity, and end-of-life decision-making. We invite you to call them at 856 856- Two nine one five zero two eight. Their toll free number is eight five five two eight nine two one six eight. Ask for John Connors for more information. And a reminder that the Hecht Investment Group is also on Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Facebook. And Jenny Montgomery Scott is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, FINRA, and SIPC. And when you call, you can congratulate Peter on becoming he and his wife Ellie on this week becoming a grandparent for the first time. Uh, it's a cloudy, rainy day in greater Philadelphia here. And before we move into our second segment with Dr. Tom Cole from, calling in from Houston, a um, little bit of a little bit of an upbeat, I hope, music. Little Beatles a la Aretha Franklin. I'm Eleanor Rigby. I picked up the rice in the church where the weddings had been. Oh, 
Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing, and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to Boomer Generation Radio, our second segment today here coming to you from the studios of WWDB AM860 in Greater Philadelphia and streaming live all over the universe and WWDBAM.com. I would hope the universe, at least the United States. Um, or somewhere. Anyway, we are very pleased to welcome and honored to welcome to the microphone and uh, thanks to Tony and the electronics, uh, Dr. Tom Cole, who is the director of the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at the University of Texas Medical in Houston, Texas. Tom, are you there? I am, Rabbi. How are you? Oh, you can drop the rabbi and just say, we've known each other for a long time. How are you, Tom? Uh, I'm good. It's good to hear your voice. Good to hear yeah, your voice. Good. Has it stopped raining in Houston? It stopped raining. It's um, it's sunny. It's cool out here. We actually got a decent walk in this morning. Good for you. Good for you. Well, look it up. Well, the rain's here. So, uh you you have uh, spent a lot of your life dealing with uh, some of the cultural issues of aging and humanities. And in your book, The Journey of Life, which is uh, subtitled A Cultural History of Aging in America, you talked about your desire to explore the, the uh, cultural shoreline of later life, which is a brilliant image. And uh, in your work, and we'll go through some of that because uh, you are not only an accomplished author and a filmmaker, professor, teacher, uh, dealing with a lot of these issues. What have you What have you found on that cultural shoreline of aging? Well, you know, I think the, the shoreline changes over time, um, just like the sea levels rise, unfortunately. Um, and I think we, in the last you know, a couple hundred years, we have moved from the meaning of aging being attributed by religion to the meaning of aging being attributed by medicine and health. And uh, there's a lot to be said for, of course, living longer, being healthier, the things that, that we're all trying to accomplish. But sometimes that comes at the cost uh, of a broader view of uh, the meaning of aging uh, and um, our connections to to our religious communities, to our, our local communities, to relationships in general. So we've had this kind of transition from religious to individual health ways of thinking, and uh, it's a mixed blessing. Do I walk unpack that a little bit? Why, why is it a mixed blessing? Because you you you've written about. I mean, I'm interested into just explore this a little bit with you, and especially that for opening the premise that we've moved to a more scientific approach to aging as opposed to perhaps a more faith-based or spiritual approach to aging. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, let me illustrate this with a story that um, I once heard, um, and it, it's a story about T.S. Eliot, the famous 
mid-century British writer, and uh, Eliot is giving a lecture on uh, an important social topic, and this young man, a very enthusiastic man, comes up at the end of the lecture and says, that's all well and good, Mr. Eliot, but uh, tell me, what are we going to do about this problem? How are we going to solve this problem? And Eliot looks at him and he says, well, you really misunderstand, young man, that there are two kinds of problems in life. One is like a puzzle, and if you have enough intelligence, effort, persistence, resources, you will, you will eventually solve a puzzle. But other problems are like mysteries. But they are, there is no solution to a mystery. The way you deal with the mystery is by creating a meaningful understanding of it, a meaningful approach to it. And I think that's the uh, that's a good metaphor for the way we have misconstrued uh, the experience of aging. So um, aging remains a mystery, no matter how much science, no matter how much biogerontology, no, no matter how much increased lifespan, decreased disability, all these things that are so important to us. In the end, aging is a mysterious process. It's, it's part of the mystery of just like coming into the world and leaving the world. These are not things that we have control of. These are things that remain mysteries. And mysteries require that we create some kind of meaningful response, some kind of orientation to, to, to the mystery that um, helps us make sense of it uh, rather than just feel out of control, dumbfounded, alone, isolated. Uh, so that's an example, uh, a metaphorical example of thinking about aging more as a mystery than as a problem, and therefore something that requires uh, meaning, uh, and we can talk a little bit about what meaning is, um, rather than pure sol- problem solving. And And that sense of how one chooses to deal with that mystery is blatantly subjective, is it not? It is subjective, but it's also cultural. Um, you, know, you grow up in a community, and if the community, if it's a religious community, uh, the symbols of that faith tradition uh, affect the individual psyche. Um, so that when subjectivity becomes uh, drenched in or shaped by uh, the larger worldview that, that we have. And um, it also gets shaped by uh, the communities that we live in, the strength of these communities. And we all know that uh, the more contact people have, the more friends people have, uh, the more social engagement people have as they get older, the happier they are mm-hmm. and the longer they live. So, so meaning comes, it's not just subjective in a personal sense, it is subjective, but it's subjective in an interpersonal sense. It's what happens between you and me. Um, it's that interchange creates a sort of subjective meaning you know, that allows me to grow into the world. Um, and growth, I think, is an important point here um, because we have this illusion, I think, that... Um, Aging is not something that allows you to continue to grow. Right. Um, and uh, I'm sure you know this, 
rabbinic story, uh, a little fragment that um, when each of us is born into the world, an angel, sort of an accompanying angel, comes up and slaps us on the butt and whispers, grow into our ear. And the problem is we stop listening to that angel once we somehow get in to midlife or start aging. We think that growing is not sim- is not something that's possible for us and that we're just in a period of reacting or declining or failing. Uh, and this is part of the problem that we're up against uh, in the culture. Well, and, and, and Tom, the... the in your experience, in your writing, in your research, in your in your own living experience, does that seem to to be changing with the boomers who really seem to be rejecting a lot of this? Um, um, you know, you're 60, 70, 80, 90, just sit there and wait to die, as opposed to uh, I have this opportunity now, given the wild cards of health and money, to really continue to grow, to do the things that I've always wanted to do and explore and give back and be involved with grandchildren in different types of ways. My sense is that there is a, on a certain segment of the boomer generation an attempt to really redefine um, what it means to grow older, given the two wild cards of money and health, which change everything. Yeah. So it, it, uh, is this change d- taking place, or is this totally off the wall? I, I think it's changing, uh, uh, you know, like you say, in a, in a particular subset of the population um, that does have education, that does have resources, and that is relatively healthy. Um, people are living lives uh, that allow them to grow um, in, like you say, in whatever form, uh, whether it's volunteer work, whether it's more time with grandchildren, whether it's taking up a new language or a new hobby. Um, but by and large, the culture still, uh, the mainstream culture, especially consumer culture, treats aging as a form of failure, as a form of decline, as something to be avoided at all costs. And so people spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying not to age, trying to look like they're young, trying to avoid the perception um, that they're old. I understand this at a personal level. Um, You know, right now I am uh, 67. My, uh, My right hip is really acting up. It's like excruciating to walk. Um, I'm engaged. I I managed to get around. Um, I direct the center. Uh, but the level of pain that I experience is so great that it reduces the amount of uh, energy that's available right. for me in my daily life. Uh, is this aging? Is this disease? Uh, what do I do? I'm going to have a hip replacement in three weeks. Oh, wow. Do I tell people? Uh, do I not tell people? And what, how how are they going to perceive me? Oh, Tom's gotten old all of a sudden. Um, is that my own experience? My own experience is I'm the same person I ever was, but I'm really hurt. <laughs> I'm really hurt. There's really something wrong with my hip. Right. And um, so I have to find ways to be who I am. On both sides of that, right? I am somebody who's 
67, who has a really bad hip that needs to be replaced, and who is physically much less vigorous than I was several years ago. This goes to a, a larger issue that that really so many of us are now beginning. I was just in a conversation um, the other night with a group of people, basically our contemporaries. And this again came up when some uh, one of the individuals there said one of the things that they want to talk, really need to talk about is how to accept uh, the changes in one's body. I mean, granted, medical technology has has made it possible that so many of our generation will have a knee replaced, a hip replaced, and they're back up running, you know, sprints or something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that, and that's one of the blessings of technology that will allow that to happen, and and I'm sure it will with you. But the larger question of um, how does one deal with accept, but not accept in sense of surrender, but accept in the sense of this is who I am, and I'm validating it, but it doesn't change who the I, the the me, the, the soul of who Tom is or who Richard is, just because I have a have, have to have a hip replacement. So what? Thank God I'm able to have it. I mean, this is a part of that larger cultural question that you you spent your life studying. Um, and it's a very, very powerful question for many people in our generation. Is it, it, that, that role of acceptance, and it's not a giving up. It's just maybe a, an ability to move on into a next stage and accept it. This is another stage that also, God willing, allows us to move forward and, as you said in that story, to continue to grow. We're speaking with Tom Cole, Dr. Tom Cole, the director of the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at the University of Texas Medical Center in Houston, and we'll be back with Tom right after this message from our friends down the street at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approaches to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you from WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia and streaming live all over the place on WWDBAM.com. And we're speaking with Dr. Thomas Cole, the director of the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at University of Texas Medical in Houston, Texas. Um, Talking a lot about some of the research of Dr. Cole and the culture of aging and some of the contemporary challenges. Tom, uh, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about one of the classes I just, because we had dinner a couple of months ago, I think it was in February, mm-hmm. um, with your colleague. You like our margaritas, huh? <laughs> they were good margaritas. Uh, and the <laughs> chips at that Mexican place were cosmic, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Yes, they're good. They are very good. Um, so you team teach this class with a very, very good friend of yours, Koshi, right? Um, and it, it's um, it's for medical. Is it for medical students at UT? It's for medical students at UT and for chaplains in training. So, and walk us through. And, and you report some unbelievable things happening in this class, which which brings together Eastern Western thought, meditation, 
Um, what's the, first of all, what's the class called? Um, it's called um, Care and Resilience um, in End-of-Life Care. Uh, well, Resilience and Care at, at the End of Life. And it's part of, a, of an overall perspective on contemplative care. Uh, at the end of life. Uh, Koshin Pelianson has a new book that's about to appear. I'm sure he'll be on your program pitching it. Mm-hmm. At least I hope so. And it's called Awake at the Bedside. And it consists of a series of chapters by um, people from different religious, and, uh, ethnic uh, backgrounds and orientations who um, emphasize from their own point of view the importance of caregivers being fully present through um, practicing the disciplines um, of contemplation and meditation. So you teach this with medical students. Mm-hmm. Um, what in perception, and we've had some people who do similar. There's a gentleman here who actually writes for my website and teaches this at Jefferson Medical School, Dr. Tom Friedman. And he, he, he uh-huh. reports some unbelievable responses on the part of medical students being opened up. What are you finding with your medical students? How, are they, obviously, is, this is an elective class, correct? Yes. So the people who come to the class are already perhaps pre-sold. They, they sort of like know what they're getting into. But walk me through some of the reactions because these individuals, you know, within a matter of years are going to be sitting at the bedside of a, an individual and working with a family when they approach these various teaching and contemplative techniques that you teach them. What's some of the reaction? Well, one of the hardest things for medical students to do, and I think, physicians in general, is to uh, step aside from, for a bit from their problem-solving, um, purely objective way of making a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a treatment, and um, understand themselves as fully human and present at the bedside, uh, in the presence of another fully human being. Um, and this is a move, it's a spiritual, psychological move, you might say, in, between states of mind that um, nobody teaches you how to, to do in medical school. Some of these techniques you learn if you're a psychotherapist, um, if you are in the, one of the contemplative traditions, although even there, the idea of being fully present, of being fully awake, here, now, in this moment, to sort of, uh, you know, what Ram Dass used to say, uh, be here now. Um, and we ask students to do that in reaction to texts and in reaction to life situations that they've had. And it means uh, sitting back and letting them explore their own feelings uh, with courage um, and with uncertainty. Uh, if, for example, um, a student has made a mistake uh, and they are really upset about it and they feel like a failure, um, one of the techniques that we encourage um, is um, open discussion uh, without judgment, uh, allowing a sort of um, 
forgiveness, the process of forgiveness, self-forgiveness, uh, and understanding um, among the group uh, that mistakes happen, uh, that whatever the outcome doesn't mean you're not going to be a good, a great physician. Uh, it means you're human. And so to be fully present in that, in that moment of that discussion means feeling the pain of, of failure, feeling how awful it is to have made that mistake, which may or may not have affected the care of, of one of your patients. That's something students don't get to do uh, in any other setting in their medical education, and it's profoundly liberating for them. It allows them to go into places, psychic and spiritual places, that are taboo otherwise. Um, and once they do that, uh, they are able to connect with their patients um, in a wholly new way uh, and make space, make a psychic or spiritual space for their patients to occupy with them. Um, you know, in our tradition, you would think of this as I and that, right? mm -hmm. uh, pure, open, uh, unfettered dialogue. It requires a kind of a, a purity, a consciousness, an awareness um, that is fearless uh, and open to pain, open to failure, open to love, uh, open to uncertainty. And um, those are some of the most uh, uh, powerful experiences that our students have, and they will never forget these experiences. Um, they are among the most important experiences that they will have in medical school, because there's no other way to get this experience. They can they can do learn to do lumbar punctures, and they can learn to do to take blood pressure and uh, give prescriptions. And they are they they have to do that. That's if they don't do that, they are failing. Right, it's a technical part of their work, but. Um, this kind of humanizing, contemplative approach to presence and awakeness is what makes this uh, this course and this tradition that Koshin is is uh, one of the leaders of that makes it so powerful. Do you sense? Do you see this a movement uh, the, of contemplative reactions, etc., really spreading in medical schools around the country? I think it's spreading. I think it's slow. Yeah. Um, you know, we have uh, we have a regular meditative meditation practice led by um, someone from MD Anderson once a week in our shop. Uh, the dean of nursing uh, is going to come over and partake in that course with uh, Coach and Terry Ellison. Hopefully, we'll be able to open up that course to other um, other students, nursing students as well as medical students. And the dean wants to learn to be part of a community, to, to take up a, a practice, a spiritual practice, and integrate it into her research as well. Mm -hmm. And and we do find that um, that when patients in different situations take up uh, a meditation practice, it does have an effect on the, their health outcomes. We have about so two. We have about two minutes left in this segment, and I, I just want to end the show and this interview with going back to a little bit of what we began with on that shoreline, that changing shoreline of aging. And you talked about meaning and, and how people choose to seek meaning out of this mystery called aging and life. Um, how much of this search for meaning and purpose is really, Tom, in your experience and research and thought process, how much of it is an attempt to just deal with the, the ultimate fear of dying? 
Hmm. And you have a minute and a half to answer that question. <laughs> Longer I stay silent, the less time I have. Uh, I think it's. I think it's more. I think it's fear of dying, but I also think it's uh, fear of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you have to cultivate a kind of paradox. You have to cultivate the desire to struggle and hold on, right? To get your hip, to get rehabbed, try right? to get back on the tennis court. And you have to practice letting go, um, finding a way uh, to accept things that you can't change. And it's that, it's that paradox that we all have to find our way into. Um, there's no solution to it. And it's about uncertainty um, as well as about death. Um, am I going to have a stroke? Um, I might have a stroke two minutes after we get off the phone. God forbid. Um, God forbid. Mm. But it might happen. Right. And how, can I prepare for that? Well, I don't know. Can I be aware of the possibility? Yes. Can I cultivate a way of thinking um, that is both health-oriented and oriented towards acceptance of what I can't change? So I think that's the goal. And uh, death is the ultimate, obviously, thing that's out of our control. But the uncertainty about all, all that comes between now and death. Well, thank you. Tom Cole, the director of the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at UT Medical in Houston. As usual, thank you very much, Tom, for just your time, your expertise, your brilliance, and your insights and all this. Good luck with the operation. Say hello to your family for me, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Okay, well, thanks. Take care. We'll see you again next week, same time here on WWDB AM860 on Boomer Generation Radio. Thank you, Tom. To all of you, have a great week. Stay safe, everybody.